Lord, you wrote it. We pray you teach it through your spirit. Word of wisdom, word of knowledge, help us to understand it as we go through this, that you would just lead and guide us in all ways and all things. And I just want to pray as your spirit moves, our heart is open to this, to hear to what you really have to say and to let it affect us, Lord. And we lift this up in your name. Amen. You've heard me say many times before, anytime I teach, whatever I teach on, I have to. I have to live it the week before or I have to live it the week after. It is inevitable. I know that by now. So this lesson I am thankful on, I had to live this two weeks ago. So I've already done it. I've gone through it. If you haven't, tough luck. Because it's not a fun one. It's not a fun one. To show how unfun it is, we're going to start out this way. Let's pick on people's sin. Okay? Not you guys. Don't worry about that. I don't want to make you feel uncomfortable. Let's pick on people's sins in the Bible. I'll say the person's name. You tell me what they did wrong. Okay? What did Noah do wrong? Anybody remember? Drunk. So, Noah, he's a drunk. What did Abraham do wrong? He was a liar. Constantly lying. All righty. Peter, Moses, and Elijah. Do you know what they all did wrong? They were all quitters. At one time or another, they wanted to quit. Moses, what else did he do wrong? He wasn't a good leader of his family. You know, it's not a good time in your family when your wife has to circumcise your children and throw it at your feet. So Moses, not the best leader of his family. Hey, let's go to the big guy here. Let's go to David. What did David do wrong? Adultery, murder, multiple wives and concubines. Now, you've heard me say this as we're going through Chronicles. The purpose of doing this is what's learned from these people. You know, Corinthians tells us these are Old Testament examples of what to do and also what not to do. So as we go through these people's lives, how can we learn? Last week we learned from David. What does it mean to be a man after God's own heart? This week we get to David's biggest sin. Biggest sin. And it has nothing to do with adultery. It has nothing to do with murder. It has nothing to do with multiple wives or concubines. If you were with us last week, verse 20, excuse me, chapter 20, verse 1. It happened in the spring of the year, at the time kings go out to battle, that Joab, stop right there, and Samuel, it goes into detail about Bathsheba. In Chronicles, it doesn't even mention it. But we have a whole chapter in chapter 21 of the biggest sin in David's life. And the biggest sin in David's life is pride. It's not adultery. It's not murder. It's not multiple wives or concubines. The reason I had us mention all the sins of these people. God can work with liars, quitters, drunks, adulterers, murderers. He can work with all those people. The one person, the one group of people that God will not work with is people that have pride. He won't. If you look in Isaiah 14, the background verses on Satan, on Lucifer, why did Satan fall? Pride. It's called the five I will statements of Satan in Isaiah 14, if you want to read it, where I will ascend to the Most High. I will be like God. I will have a throne. And God says, I'm going to cast you down. God can work with anything But he can't work with pride. Because pride basically is saying, Lord, I got this. And think and look around the body of Christ. We have drunks and liars and quitters and adulterers. Hopefully no murderers. You know, hopefully not multiple wives or concubines. We'll skip those. We have a lot going on out here. God can work with those. Isn't that beautiful? Second Corinthians. Anyone in Christ has a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. But when we bring pride to it, God says, that's something I can't work with. There are so many passages on pride. 
And I just started writing them down to show how serious this is. And I just started putting them on a slide. I ended up having two slides. I just want to go through them real quick. Dustin, can you put the first slide up? And these are just straightforward verses on pride. Proverbs 16.5. Everyone proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Though they join forces, none will go unpunished. That word abomination, that's a huge word. God hates pride. He who is of a proud heart stirs up strife. But he who trusts the Lord will be prospered. Proverbs 28. Though the Lord is great, he cares for the humble, but he keeps his distance from the proud. Psalm 138. Here's the hard part about the sin of pride. When I run into somebody who has the sin of pride, they don't realize it. They are so proudful that they don't even realize they're battling pride. New King James Version has a word for somebody like that, and it's called a scoffer. We don't use that word a lot nowadays. But a scoffer is someone who is so arrogant, so prideful, they know their way is the right way, and they're not open to teaching, they're not open to instruction, they're not open to listening to anybody. What does God think of that? They're an abomination, they will not prosper, they'll stir up strife, and God will keep his distance from them. Go to the next slide, please, Dustin. All who fear the Lord will hate evil, therefore I hate pride. If you're making a list of things that God hates, he hates pride and arrogance, corruption, perverse speech. When pride comes, then comes shame. But with the humble is wisdom. We're going to see here tonight in chapter 21 the shame that came from David's pride. Proverbs 13.10, by pride comes nothing but strife, but with the well-advised is wisdom. Remember that verse. You're going to see that in just a couple verses here. Joab tries to give David advice. He will not listen. And the one that we probably know the most, Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. When you walk in pride, it will lead to destruction. And that haughty spirit, that word haughty, that arrogant spirit will cause you to fall. So we have laid this groundwork on how awful pride is, the sin of pride. God cannot work with somebody with pride because that person with pride isn't really wanting the Lord to lead their lives. They're going to lead their own life. They're going to make their own decisions they think is best. They will not listen to wisdom. They will not listen to counsel. They will walk in this pride. They'll fall. They'll stumble. They'll take people down with them. It does not work. And what you see here in First Chronicles 21 is a whole chapter of pride. And if I remember correctly, 70,000 people die because of David's pride. And if you're making a list of David's sins, I agree with you. Adultery, murder, multiple wives, concubines. Chronicles says, yeah, we're not going to focus on that. This is what we're going to focus on. This is David's big sin. Let's see what happens. First Chronicles 21, verse 1. Now Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. So David said to Joab and to the leaders of the people, Go number Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring the number of them to me that I may know it. Joab answered, May the Lord make his people a hundred times more than they are, but my Lord the king, are there not all my Lord's servants? Why then does my Lord require this thing? Why should he be a cause of guilt in Israel? Remember we just read Proverbs 13.10, with the well-advised Joab. Joab is not a spiritual giant in the Bible in any way whatsoever. In fact, when I teach on Joab, one of the things I teach on Joab, this is a man that is always run by the emotion and the flesh. He, he just, what he sees, he goes, he does, he takes care of it. Joab here is the one saying, stop. This is not good. Don't go count people. 
Verse 4, Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab. Therefore Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came to Jerusalem. Then Joab gave the sum of the number of people to David. All Israel had 1,100,000 men who drew the sword, and Judah had 470,000 men who drew the sword. But he did not count Levi and Benjamin among them, for the king's word was abominable to Joab. Now why didn't he count Levi, and why didn't he count Benjamin? We don't know for sure. Some people think that Joab got so disgusted by this, he said, I, I'm done. It's like, I'm not even going to finish the job. This is just so wrong to do. Verse 7, and God was displeased with this thing, therefore he struck Israel. Now, just, just honestly, make a mental list in your head. An affair with Bathsheba, which leads to the murder of her husband, versus David saying, give me a head count of the nation. Which one is worse? The adultery, the murder, somebody's life was taken, a marriage was ruined. The trickle-down effect of that thing affected generations past David. God says, no, him having the people be counted was worse. Because the first sin was just flesh. It was just lust. This one was putting God in the background. This is the shepherd boy that knew he couldn't defeat Goliath without God's help. Now, at the end of his life, he looks around his kingdom and says, I wonder how many people I got. Pride. Now, it doesn't seem like it's that big a deal, right? Well, it's interesting. In the book of Deuteronomy, God does call for census. He wants to know. And he calls for two of them. If you've ever studied out in the beginning of the book of Numbers and at the end of the book of Numbers, there's two census. That's why it's called the book of Numbers. They want to know how many people there were. But here's the deal. If you took a census and God ordered it, Every single person had to pay a half shekel to be part of the census. So what actually happened is this. You did not count the people. You counted the shekels. Do you follow? And you may think, well, why did God require that? All the money that was given then went to the tabernacle to be used for the purpose of the Lord. This still carries on a little bit today. If you go into certain Jewish sectors, they will not count people. So if they came in here tonight... They would not count how many people came to church tonight because David with pride. So you know what they do? They would go like this. Not one, not two, not three, not four. That way they're not counting. That's what they do. The pride. Now, you may think once again, I still don't see the big deal. The big deal is David is saying, look what I have done. Look at the kingdom I have built. Look at the people that I have. God's like, who are you, David? This is all me. This pride affects everything we do in life. Richard and I were out a couple weeks ago, and I told you that I had to live this lesson beforehand. And Richard and I spent the day together doing some visits and stuff like that, and we just got on the subject of pride. And I was just kind of opening up to him a little bit of some of the stuff I'm struggling with and that. And Richard, and once again, you know Richard, there is no filter, no filter between head and mouth. It just comes right out. And he looks at me, Jamie, sounds like pride. Well, that hurt my pride, that I would have pride. And I started thinking about that. And it's like, it is. Because pride is disguised in so many different things. We can be humbly proud. I am so humble that I'm prideful. Oh, I'm nothing in the kingdom of God. I'm absolutely nothing. I don't bring anything to the table. And really what you're hoping deep down in the darkness of your heart. No, tell me I'm important. 
I remember Bob Coy telling the story one time when he was a new believer and he just got saved. And he was out in the parking lot of the church. And he knew that the board met every Saturday morning at 9 a.m. And they met on the second floor and they had a window that would look out across the parking lot. So he said he purposely showed up a little before 9 and just started cleaning the parking lot. And as he's cleaning the parking lot, he would just randomly look up at the window. Is anybody looking at me? Is anybody watching? Waiting for them to come out because he wanted so bad to be noticed. And he said he already had it all planned out. He does a great job telling the story. He had the whole plan out that when they come, oh, I'm just a servant. I'm just here to serve the Lord. Oh, I didn't know you guys were going to be here. He says it got to be 1 o'clock. No one came out. No one came out. He ended up leaving, feeling dejected and bothered. He ran into the pastor the next day at church and just kind of made an offhand comment about, you know, don't you guys typically have your meeting Saturday mornings at 9? He goes, oh, yeah, we do, but yesterday we decided to go out for breakfast. So there was no one at the church, and so for four hours he was just out there working unto the Lord, but yet in his heart there was pride. And, and guys, let's just be completely blunt. Pride covers everything in our lives. Pride is that little voice that says, I hope they notice what I'm doing. Pride is that little voice that says, I'm just doing it for the Lord, but I'm glad you saw me. Pride is, I may be wrong on this area, but I don't want to admit I'm wrong, so I'm still going to think I'm right. Pride can be, I don't need help. Pride can be, I need a whole lot of help because I want everybody to focus on me. Guys, pride is absolutely disgusting. That's why God says it's an abomination. That's why God says he hates it. Because what pride is really saying is, Lord, I have done this. This is what David did that was so awful. He went from being the shepherd boy that says, I can't do anything unless the Lord is with me. The battle belongs to the Lord. First Samuel 13. And then now, 11 chapters later, he's saying, hey, count everybody. Count everybody. That's awful. And you know when Joab is trying to correct you. That's pretty bad. When Joab has to step in and say, because guys, numbers don't matter. It doesn't. I've shared with you before that any time I tell somebody I'm a pastor, if they don't walk away, the first question they always ask is what? How big is your church? How big? I used to answer. Then I went through a phase where I would say, I don't know, more than 100, less than 1,000. And now I answer, I don't know. And I can honestly say with a clear conscience, I don't know. And I'm not going to lie to you. You know, I've been doing this now. This is my 17th year. At, at beginning, there is that element of, oh, okay, how many people are here? Okay, good. Okay, good. We're moving forward. You know? And then it reaches a point of, oh, how many people are here? I've come to the conclusion, one Sunday, we can be so full we're setting up extra chairs. The next Sunday... There's a fourth of the people there. One Wednesday, it can be packed. The next Wednesday, where is everybody? It can be beautiful weather outside and no one shows. It can be ten below zero and the church is full. There is no rhyme nor reason to anything. And I have come to the conclusion, and I hope I mean this with a sincere heart, I'm just going to love whoever shows up. Because that's what we're called to do. Because it's not about us. You hear me say this every message. It's not about us. Who's it about? Jesus. Some of the greatest ministry that Jesus ever had was one-on-one. We're doing a little discipleship thing on Saturday mornings with a couple group of guys. And we just went through John 4. John 4 is the story of the woman at the well. Jesus and one woman for a whole chapter. 
Just one-on-one ministry. John 3, where we get John 3, 3, you must be born again. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. You know the verses. That's Jesus talking to one person. Because sometimes it's just one-on-one. The word sheep is both singular and plural at the same time. We're called to love the sheep. If you base success on numbers, then Jesus was an absolute failure. He was a failure. In fact, anytime Jesus got a big falling, what did he always do? He gave a really hard teaching, and he said, the Bible says that many disciples turned away. Some of the pastors I respect most, and I love the most, and I've learned the most from, their churches are really small. Some of the pastors I've ever seen that have the biggest churches you could ever imagine, I would want nothing to do with that ministry in any way whatsoever. It's not about numbers. It's not. Because if we base it on numbers, then it's about us. It's about whoever shows up, just love them. And when when you love them, it just doesn't matter. So Joab's advice to David, King, don't do this. Don't, it's not worth it. Joab knew that this was a dangerous, slippery slope. David still went ahead and did it. I envisioned David doing this, sitting back. Now, what put David in the position of verse 21 where Satan sees he's right for this? Well, we know from Samuel, just a real quick background, 1 Samuel 11, you have David and Bathsheba. Okay, we know that's bad. Okay, Jump ahead a couple chapters in chapter 13. One of his sons is raping his half-sister. Then his half-brother, one of his sons, is murdering his other half-brother. And guess what David did about it? Nothing. Then you have his one son, Absalom, trying to take the kingdom from him in chapter 15. What does David do? Oh, please don't kill him. Then you have another rebellion in the next chapter. And then you have another rebellion in chapter 20. David is now at the end of his life, the Bible says... And this is when Satan hits him. See, David just went through about ten chapters of not being a strong leader, not being spiritually where he's supposed to be. The Bible says he's nearing the end of his life, and it almost seems like David let his defenses down. And he looks around, and he says, I wonder how many. Man. So, that's the setup. Verse 7. God was displeased with this, therefore he struck Israel. Now, before we get into what the Lord does, anybody have any quick questions, comments about any of this before we move on? Okay. We've established pride. It's bad. I cannot stress to you how bad that is. I just ask you to honestly, in your heart, seek the Holy Spirit and just ask, is there an element of pride in anything I'm doing? And it may be standing your ground on something you're not willing to bend on. It may be a pride of, look at me, I don't know. Is there any pride? Because you just read the verses with me. God doesn't want to work with that. He wants us to be humble and seeking Him. Verse 8, David said to God, I have sinned greatly because I have done this thing. But now I pray, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. I was talking to someone today on the phone, and we were talking about how, how can David be a man after God's own heart, but he keeps on doing these dumb things. Because verse 8, you see his heart. When he realized what he did, I messed up, God. I messed up big time. And, and Lord, take it away. I see this a lot with my kids. Is When they do something they shouldn't do, I say, okay, here's the punishment. I'm going to do this. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. If they come to me in a humble and contrite spirit and they want to make peace... I will almost every time, nine times out of ten, take away the punishment because I think it's a picture of grace and mercy. 
Now, I think, I hope, I should say, I hope I'm wise enough to know if they're trying to play me or not. But I'm not going to say their names because I know they listen to the message. But it's Elias and Layden are the ones that won't come make peace. Kenan will make peace right away. Judah will make peace right away. Little Tyrus, he, he comes up to me on a regular basis. I'm sorry. I don't even know what you did, bud. He goes, I just want to tell you I'm sorry. Okay, well then, God love you. <laughs> Go and sin no more. I, you know, and then I'm always thinking, what did, what did I just okay with? This is what Elias does. This is what Lane does. They know they're wrong. They know we don't have peace. They know there's an issue. So I'll be sitting. They'll come near me and just walk near me, head down, try to make eye contact. Elias, do you want to talk about something? No. Layton, do you want to talk about something? No. Leave the room. Come back. Do it again. Their little heart is so wanting to make peace. So wanting to make peace. So what I normally do is call them over, come sit beside me, put my arm around them. Is there something you want to tell me? I see David's heart right here. As soon as he realized he was wrong, he knew he was wrong. I have sinned. I have sinned greatly. I've done this thing. It was foolish. Look at this. There is no excuse. There's none of this. I'm sorry I did this, but, or I really know I shouldn't have, but I just screwed up, God, and I'm sorry. Verse 9, then the Lord spoke to Gad, David's seer, saying, go and tell David, saying, thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose one of them for yourself that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Choose for yourself either three years of famine or three months to be defeated by your foes with the sword of your enemies overtaking you. Or else for three days the sword of the Lord, the plague in the land, with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Now consider what answer I should take back to him who sent me. Wow. Okay, you've got three options here, David. You're either going to have a famine of three years. You're going to have three months of being defeated by your enemies. Or... I'm going to send the angel of the Lord to start destroying the people of Israel. Okay, now, didn't we just read that God's a God of grace and mercy? David said he's wrong, and why is he doing this? If you're a note taker, write it down. You can look it up later. Hebrews 12.6. Hebrews 12.6. God chastens his sons that he loves. Part of being a child of God is you are disciplined by God when you do something you shouldn't have. I love my kids so much. You know that. You love your kids. And I love them enough to discipline them. I was just talking to one of the kids the other day and had to say no to something. And I said, I'm going to give you a speech here real quick. I love you enough to tell you no. It'd be really easy to tell you yes, but I love you enough to tell you no, and I love you enough to be a jerk. God loves David enough to say, I have to discipline you. What's the big deal? The big deal was back in Deuteronomy, God made it completely clear. You do not take a census and let the Lord is leading. And if you do take a census, everybody pays a half shekel. It goes towards the temple. David, you're wrong. I know you're sorry. I forgive you. But there has to be a discipline and a punishment. You know that's the system that the Lord has set up. If you go before the judge and say, I'm sorry, the judge can say, fine, I accept that. But there's still a discipline and a punishment. So God is actually showing love to David by disciplining him, by chastening him. I know that doesn't make sense sometimes, but in Hebrews 12, 6, God loves his sons enough to chase them. Now, the writer of Hebrews goes one step further and says, if you're not being disciplined by the Lord, 
Maybe God doesn't love you because you're not his kid. You know the example of this. You're walking through Walmart and you see a kid that's not yours. And you want to go over and you want to discipline that kid. Why don't you? It's not your kid. You probably have neighbor kids that you would love to pull the car over and do a little bit of chastening on them. Why don't you? Because I don't want to visit you in CCNO. We chasten ours. We may make comments about others, but we chasten ours. We discipline ours. The most loving thing God could do to David is say, I love you enough to discipline you. I know that doesn't make sense, but just put your parent hat on for a second. Do you love your kid enough to discipline them? You, you love them enough to do it, to train them up. So he's got three options, the famine, the war, the people. Verse 13, David said to Gad, I'm in great distress. Please let me fall into the hand of the Lord. For his mercies are very great, but do not let me fall into the hand of a man. I read a lot on this. And I, you know, seriously, ask yourself. You're the, you're the king of Israel. You, you know you got 1.1, 1.3 fighting men, which probably means men over the age of 20, which means total population. You're probably talking 5, 6 million people. You're the king over this country. This is a tough choice. Do you take the famine and know that a lot of people are going to die? Do you take the enemies, knowing that these soldiers who did nothing wrong, because David's not going out to battle. He's probably pushing 70 by this time. So they're going to die? You know, one commentator I read said this is the best choice David could make. If he chose famine, the king's not going to starve to death. The king will always have enough food because he's the king. If he chose battle, well, David is not going to go out to battle. He's too old. It's already been decided he wasn't going out to battle. If you remember the story, it's an earlier part of the Bible. David went out to battle when he was a little too old to go out to battle, and he almost got killed. His soldiers came and saved him and said, yeah, you stay back. So David does the best one where he says, I'll take the plague. One commentator said this also shows his heart because this is the only discipline that could have affected his family. None of the other ones could have affected him. This is the only one that would have stopped and said it could get to him. Verse 14. So the Lord sent a plague upon Israel and 70,000 men of Israel fell. You and I have not been in that position. I was reading an autobiography one time about an officer that served in World War II. And he went into great detail the first time he led a mission and one of his men died. And he just said that feeling of you being in charge, you giving the orders, and somebody dies... It's not your fault, but because of a choice you made as a leader. He says you will never understand what that feels like. Seriously, David so messed up as he looks across his nation and 70,000 people die because David had a moment of, I wonder how many people I got. You may say this isn't fair, right? I agree it's not fair. And this is the problem with sin. When I sin and I mess up, guess who suffers? My wife, my kids, the church. That's not fair. Lord, why is it that my sin affects Dawn? Because 20 years ago I said, let's be one flesh. Why is it that my sin affects my kids? Because I chose to bring these kids into my family. Why is it that my sin affects the church? Because I've chosen to live my life publicly in front of you guys and say, I want to love you. David, you're the king. You have responsibility. You, you have this. His sin trickles down and affects everybody and everything. And you may say, well, that's because he's in leadership. It goes the other way, too. Remember in the story of the book of Joshua, there's a man by the name of Achan 
who stole something he shouldn't have stole. Achan is a nobody. He stole something he wasn't supposed to steal. The Israelites go out to battle. They lose the battle. Men die because of Achan's sin. Joshua goes to the Lord and says, why did we lose? God basically says, paraphrase, you got a thief in the camp. They find out it was Achan. Achan, who was a nobody, his sin affected a whole nation. Guys, you, you, you can't sin in the dark. It's going to affect somebody. And I think so often we become prideful in our sin because this only affects me. I'm the only one drinking it. I'm the only one looking at it online. I'm the only one thinking those thoughts. I'm the only one. It will affect your spiritual life and it will affect everybody. It will go up. It will go down. It will hurt anybody you're involved with. Your sphere of influence will be hurt by your sin. David, 70,000 men fell. Verse 15, God sent an angel to Jerusalem to destroy it. As, it was, as he was destroying it, the Lord looked and relented of the disaster. God is a God of grace and mercy. And said to the angel who was destroying it, it is enough. Now restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord stood by the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite. David lifted his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord standing between the earth and heaven, having his hand a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. So David and the elders clothed in sackcloth fell on their faces. They wore sackcloth because it was a rough material. It would feel awful. It was uncomfortable. It was one of those things that you did when you were in mourning. Verse 17, David said to God, Was it not I who commanded, commanded the people to be numbered? And I am the one who has sinned and done evil indeed. But the sheep, don't you love that? The sheep, David saw his role. His role was not the king of a kingdom. His role was just to love the sheep. What have they done? Let your hand, I pray, O Lord my God, be against me and my father's house, but not against your people that they should be plagued. This is why David was a man after God's own heart. Because he could have chose the famine and said, Guys, three months, it's bad, stockpile. He could have said, You know what? Send them out to battle. I'll be in my bed. No, let this happen. Verse 18, Therefore the angel of the Lord commanded Gad to say to David that David should go and erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. So David went up at the word of Gad, which he had spoken the name of the Lord. Now Ornan turned and saw the angel, and his four sons were with him and hid themselves. But Ornan continued threshing wheat. Verse 20, I cannot wait to meet this guy. You're out there threshing wheat, and what that would mean is you bring the wheat in, and you throw it up in the air, and as you throw it up in the air, the wind blows the chaff away and it leaves the wheat. And you did it up on a hill because you had good winds coming. So Ornan's out there with his four boys. They're threshing wheat. They look out. Ornan, they see the angel of the Lord standing, or I should say, above Israel. They see what's going on. The four boys freak out. They run. Ornan says, yeah, it's just the angel of the Lord. He's a man of faith. I'm just going to keep threshing wheat. I love that. I mean, I just love it. He's, he's like the guy you see in the old war movies where everybody's shooting. I'm just going to walk over here. Calm, cool, collect, nothing to worry about. Why did God choose his place? Because obviously this guy had a heart. Verse 21, David came to Ornan. Ornan looked and saw David, and he went out from the threshing floor. Isn't it fascinating? I probably should stop threshing now. There's the king. But the angel of the Lord sending a plague, I got work to do. Bowed before David with his face to the ground. This man understood God's anointed. Verse 22, David said to Ornan, Grant me the place of this threshing floor that I may build an altar on it to the Lord. You shall grant it to me at the full price that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. But Ornan said to David, Take it yourself. Let my lord the king do what is good in his eyes. Look, I also give you the oxen for burnt offerings, the threshing implements for wood, and the wheat for the grain offerings. I give it all. That's a heart. What do you think went through David's mind? 
when Ornan said, Take it yourself and let my lord the king do what is good in his eyes. I trust you enough, David, as my king, do what you feel is right. Don't you think there was a knife in David's heart at that moment saying, Yeah, my good judgment got us into this. You know, it's just amazing when your kids come up to you and just give you a hug and just, Dad, I love you. You're you're, you're the best dad. You're this whatever. And the first thought that goes through my mind is, come on, guys. You don't don't see? (laughs) You don't see the idiot that I am? We were doing devotions not that long ago, and we go around, and one of the part of the devotions was, what do we need to work on spiritually? So we all went around and said, what do we need to work on spiritually? And I said, okay, guys, this is where it gets really difficult now because we know each other better than anybody. We live with each other 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Now, Elias, brothers, everybody, what does Elias need to work on? Okay, what does Judah need to work on? And it, it, was, it was lighthearted and fun, but it was also kind of serious. Like, you know, Elias, you know, sometimes you yell at me. You know, Elias, sometimes you're like, okay, got it, writing it down, whatever. Okay, get to me. Okay, boys. What do I need to work on? I'm not kidding. They said nothing. No joke. And, I, and I'm not even gonna make. They said nothing. And I'm thinking, I, I seriously, I know. I snap at you sometimes. I raise my voice when I shouldn't. You know, sometimes as a dad, you use intimidation to get your point across. They have such a mindset of their father that that I do no wrong. And I stop and I look at that and I say, what did we ever do? To do? You know what I mean? I look at Ornan just looking at David and saying, David, I trust you. Take it all. Whatever you need, it's yours. And I look at David and I'm thinking, don't, don't you think David sat there and said, man, people are dying because of me. Verse 24, the king David said to Ornan, No, but I will surely buy it for the full price, for I will not take what is yours for the Lord, nor offer burnt offerings with that which cost me nothing. So David gave Ornan 600 shekels of gold by weight for the place. Now, real quick, and we're running out of time. I just need to throw this out here real quick. It's Mark 12 and Luke 21. We don't have time to go there. Mark 12 and Luke 21. You know the story of the widow that, that gave her the widow's might. And the Bible says that there was all these people making their donations at church. So the rich people are going up and they're dropping in a whole lot of money. The widow gets up and just gives this tiny penny of money. And Jesus says, she's the one that gave the most. She's the one that gave the most because she gave out of her poverty. She gave out of her poverty. The point is this. God asks us sometimes to make a sacrifice. And God will always honor that sacrifice. David is the king. He could have just taken this. He says, no, I owe you. I have to put, I love the term, I have to put some sweat equity into this. Because if I don't put any sweat equity into this, then it means nothing to me. It means nothing. And this is something that, you know, I think still is a valuable point to this day. You know, we as a lot of times as churches, someone has a a, a missions trip they want to do. Hey, we'd love to help you with the missions trip. But we also think it's important for you to say, I'm going to put some sweat equity into this. To say, I, I want to go and I'm going to put that effort into it as well. We also want to bless you with it. I, we think it's important to say, okay, if this is important to you, what are you willing to do in any type of ministry? To say, I want to put some effort into this. Now, does it matter how much you put into something? No. Isn't that the beautiful part about it? Because every amount is different. 
Somebody could come and say, Harvest Fellowship, I want to give you six figures. Wow. Think of all the stuff we could do with six figures for the Lord. Amen. That may mean nothing to them. Nothing to them. Because they're worth a whole lot more than that. But there could be somebody on a Sunday morning who's dropping in a dollar. And that may be the biggest sacrifice they've ever made. The Lord knows. And that's what we have to remember. One of the things that we try to do with our boys is if they get money for Christmas or birthdays, we have an standing rule with them. If they ever want to give money to Gospel for Asia, whatever they personally want to give, Mom and I will double it. It's always been our rule. So they'll go through and they'll look at their birthday money, they'll look at their Christmas money, and say, okay, whatever you guys want to do, we'll double it. I love it. They'll sit there and they'll, they'll have all their money and, and they'll come up and they'll come up and some of them will come up and say, I'm going to give a dollar. Okay, we'll make it $2. Some will come up and say, I'm going to give $5. Sometimes they come up and they'll say, we're going to give like 40 or something like that. So one time they came up and they're going to give $5. I said, okay, we'll double that and make that 10 Their eyes got huge. They said, you're going to make that 10 I said, yeah. And they just thought that was the most amazing thing in the world. You know why? Because to them, giving up $5 was huge. Huge. When you're four years old, five, six, seven years old, $5 is huge. Okay, I'm almost 40. I probably have a five in my wallet. If you want it, take it. Right? It was not a sacrifice for me. It meant nothing. But to them, it was huge. That widow's might was huge. So there may be something that the Lord has laid on your heart in comparison to what somebody else has done or given or whatever. It may not look like much, but the Lord says it's huge. And I tell you, God honors it. He does. I was just talking to someone this week, and I was looking at, you know, just how the Lord has blessed us. God has just taken care of us just so, so much. And, and ever since we've been married, before we got married, 10% right off just goes right to the Lord. And just without even question, Lord, here it is. It's yours. And God says, I will take care of you. I promise you that. And I tell you, it's just a walking testimony of God's faithfulness. It is. He will always, always honor it. Now, you know we're not a church that pushes the money thing. But I think tonight, to prove this, we should take up an offering. What do you think? No, I'm kidding. Um, you make the sacrifice. And it's not even the financial sacrifice. It's the sacrifice of anything in life. Or you just stop and say, Lord, no one else may see what I'm doing, but I'm willing to do it for you. David said, you know what? I have to do this. I need to make the sacrifice of buying this. And look at this. Ornan gets blessed. 600 shekels of gold by weight. Verse 26. David built there an altar of the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings and called on the Lord. And he answered him from heaven by fire on the altar of burnt offering. Always remember, any time you see judgment in the Bible, you will always see grace and mercy. Verse 27. So the Lord commanded the angel and he returned his sword to its sheath. At that time when David saw the Lord had answered him on the threshing floor of Ornan, the Jebusite, he sacrificed there. For the tabernacle of the Lord and the altar of the burnt offering, which Moses had made in the wilderness, were at that time in the high place in Gibeon. Just remember this. They had not built the temple yet. David had moved the ark here, but the temple is not built yet for a while. Verse 30, but David could not go before of it and acquire of God, for he was afraid of the sword of the angel of the Lord. All the sins that David went through, the murder, the adultery, the multiple wives, concubines, the bad leadership, this is the one God says I want to talk about. It's pride. Pride is a killer. It is a killer of ministry. It's a killer in relationships. It will suck the joy out of your life because pride basically says, I can do this on my own without God. God says no. It has to be him. And this is what we see tonight here in First Chronicles 21. Anybody got any final questions, comments here? Ryan. Yeah, offering the voice to David seems uh, pretty 
question. Are there any other opportunities where God offers somebody choice A, choice B, choice C? I cannot think of, um, if somebody's got one, yell it out. I mean, there's choice A, choice B, either get saved or not get saved. But um, no, I can't think of a time where the Lord says, you know, you pick your punishment type thing. That's an interesting question. I can't think of one. I'll, I'll think about that. If someone thinks of one, shoot me a text or an email sometime. Um, any other questions, comments here about anything? All right, let's pray. Lord, as we look at this, pride is a killer. Um, Lord, you, you, you won't work with it. You won't. If there's an issue in our life that we're prideful on, in the name of Jesus, love us enough to reveal that, to knock it down, to break it, to show us. Humble us, Lord. Your word says if we will humble ourselves before you, you will lift us up. Help us be humble in our marriages and our relationships with others. Help us to be humble at work. Help us to be humble in our relationships with friends, family members. Help us to be humble in ministry. Help us to be humble in just serving you and loving you. Because it's not about us. And Lord, if there's anything in us that is seeking this, this goal of look at me, Oh, Lord, we want to be a God-pleaser, not a man-pleaser. Lord, help us just to disappear in you. And as John the Baptist said, we must decrease, you must increase. We love you, Lord, for being willing to love us the mess that we are. And we lift this up in your name. Amen. Hey, I know the roads are bad out there, and I know it's also 8 o'clock, so I think we're just going to wrap this up. If you've got something you want to pray about, come grab me, Rich, or Renee. We'll definitely pray with you one-on-one here. I know normally we do the prayer up here, but I think it would be best to probably go grab the kids and uh, get you guys out of here and get you home. So safe travels home. If you have any questions about baptism, see me coming up this Sunday.